What is it that sets Jesus apart from other religious leaders and teachers? There are lots of things we could point to, but let's start with his miracles. Not only did Jesus do things that nobody else could do, but he did so many of those things that some, even in his own day, essentially said, if this guy isn't the Messiah then what is the Messiah going to do when he shows up? He healed the sick, he walked on water, he calmed the storm, he fed the multitudes, he raised the dead, and more besides. We could also talk about his teaching. There have been lots of religious teachers, even some whose teaching has continued to be followed for centuries. But what sets Jesus apart? when it comes to his teaching. Well, his teaching was so compelling that at the end of his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew tells us this. He says, When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. At one point, Luke tells us in his gospel that Jesus was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. And that's not even counting the passage In John 7, where we're going to be today, where men were sent to arrest Jesus. That was their job. And they came back empty-handed. And when they did so, they said, no one ever spoke like this man. Not just, he's a great speaker. Not just, it's rare to find someone who talks like this. But nobody has ever spoken like this man. Now, as significant as all those things are, as powerful as his preaching was, as unique as his miracles were, they are only the fruit, not the root, of what sets Jesus apart from everybody else. It is the reason why he was able to do those things and teach that way that causes Jesus to stand apart from every other religious teacher or leader that has ever lived. Jesus is significant. Jesus is unique. Jesus stands apart, not because of what he did, but because of who he is. He is the only one who is God himself in the flesh. He is the only one who is God become man. And it is those who either misunderstood or refused to reckon with who Jesus is that missed or misunderstood everything else about him. Even some of those who were impressed by his miracles and drawn to his teaching if they didn't get who Jesus was they ultimately missed out 
on why Jesus had come. So let's look together at John chapter 7. We're going to pick it up in verse 32. We saw uh, last time in chapter 7 there was a lot of misunderstanding surrounding Jesus, a lot of confusion about who he was, and that continues into the second half of this chapter, where first we're going to see some confusion about where Jesus is going. So let me start reading for us in verse 32, and I'll read most of the rest of the chapter. It says, The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, that is, talking about maybe him being the Messiah. They heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer. And then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they, had heard, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So there's intense opposition to Jesus already at this point. And so the Pharisees, hearing people talking about Jesus possibly being the Messiah decide it's time to act, and the chief priests and the Pharisees together send officers to arrest Jesus. While that is taking place, Jesus begins to tell them what is coming next. Now we saw earlier that Jesus knows his hour has not yet come, but it's coming. He told his brothers he was not going up to the feast with them because it was not his time yet. And all throughout the Gospel of John... He's leading us up to the hour of Jesus' glory. The hour when he is lifted up on the cross in the resurrection. And then, of course, he will, or excuse me, uh, in the crucifixion, he will 
die, be buried, and then rise in the resurrection and ascend to the Father's right hand. That hour is coming, but it is not yet. And yet Jesus knows that it is near because in verse 33 he says, I will be with you a little longer. I'm not going to be here forever. I'm not sticking around for a long time. I'm going to be here a little longer. And then he says, I am going to him who sent me. Now, Jesus has been pretty clear about who it is who sent him. Even earlier in this chapter, he hinted at it when he said in verse 16 and 17, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Well, who's that? If anyone's will is to do God's will, he said, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. My teaching is from the one who sent me. Who sent me? God did. Specifically the Father. Back in chapter 5, Jesus said, The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. So Jesus is saying, I am only going to be here a little bit longer because I am returning to God. I am going back to my Father. And yet, those he's speaking to completely miss that part of Jesus' statement. Because he says in verse 34, You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Of course where he's going to go, they, they can't come. right? Because he's going back into the presence of God. They're not going to be able to find him anywhere. They're not going to be able to come where he's going. And that's the part of the statement that they focus on, and they clearly don't understand what he's talking about. Because they say, well, where does he he think he can go that we're not going to find him? Is he going to head off into Gentile territory where we don't want to go? Is he going to go teach the Greeks and he doesn't expect us to follow in there? Is that what he's talking about? Of course that's not what he's talking about. That's not what he said. He told them where he's going. But either deliberately... They ignored that part, or they were just blinded to part of what he was saying. They, they missed that, and so they were confused about where Jesus was going, and they didn't understand what he meant right? when he said, where you are going, or where I am going, you cannot come. Now, Jesus said something similar to his disciples later, but with a significant difference. In chapter 13, As Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure, he says, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, talking about right here in chapter 7, just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. But you will follow afterward. You can't come with me right now because it's not your time. It's my time to go. I'm returning to the Father. I'm going back into God's presence. And you can't come with me. Yet. But one day, you will. Jesus said later in John 16, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. It doesn't get much clearer than that. Jesus knows where he came from. He knows where he's going. If people say, well, did Jesus know that he was God? I mean, we know he's God. Did he know it? Because he was also man. What would that have been like? 
I don't know what that was like, right? It's hard to get your mind around. But did he know it? Absolutely. He told his disciples. I was in the Father's presence before I came here. That's not true of any of the rest of us. And then he said, and I'm leaving, and I'm going back to the Father's presence. And not only that, one day I'm going to come get you and take you there with me. Right, John 14. If I go and prepare a place for you, Jesus said, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. You can't come with me now, but one day you will be. You're going to be with me, and I'm going to come and get you. And he said, you know the way to where I'm going. And you know this passage, right? Thomas said, do we know? Do, <laughs> do we know the way? He said, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So here's the point of all this that those in opposition to Jesus completely missed. Where Jesus is going is ultimately about who Jesus is. It's not just that he's going on some kind of, you know, vacation or going on the run to escape the religious leaders. That's what they think he's doing. No, he's saying, I'm going where I'm from. I'm going where I belong. You can't come because you're not me. Nobody can come there unless I bring them there. And the reason I can bring them there is because of who I am and what I'm about to do. Because I am God, come to save all those who trust in me, I can bring all those who trust in me into the presence of God. That's who I am. That's why I'm here. And that's what so many fail to see and understand. Even Jesus' disciples often misunderstood what Jesus said. It's only after the fact that things began to click and come together. One of the reasons why I'm really grateful, right, to live in the time and place that we do. As neat as it would have been to see what Jesus could do and to walk in his presence and observe his miracles. I probably would have been just as lost as everybody else around Jesus was, maybe more so. Because they didn't have the whole picture. I'm grateful to have the whole picture, right, on this side of the cross and resurrection. Now, at this feast where Jesus is telling them these things, he gives a gracious invitation. A wonderful invitation that is also an indication of who he is. So it says in verse 37, on the last day of the feast... The great day Jesus stood up and cried out. So this is when, you know, probably everybody has been waiting for this day. It's the climactic day. And Jesus makes this grand announcement. And here's what he says. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, I want you to think about those words. There's so many things we could say about that. But think about this for a moment. Think about the word me in that statement. What is the one thing that God has hammered into his people all throughout the Old Testament? 
There is only one God. There's only one you should worship. There's only one you can satisfy, who can satisfy you. If you turn to those false gods that have eyes but can't see and feet but can't walk and mouths but can't talk, they're not going to do anything for you and you're just going to end up becoming like them. I am the living God and I alone can give you life. God made that abundantly clear. And then Jesus shows up at a feast meant to remind the people how God had provided for them and blessed them. And he says, if you're thirsty, if you have a longing that you cannot satisfy, you come to me and I will satisfy you. At one level, you can understand why the Pharisees were so opposed to Jesus. Because that is either the truth because Jesus is God or it is utter blasphemy. Those are the only two options. That's not an interesting teaching that you can ponder and apply to your life if you so choose. It is nothing short of a claim to deity. I am the one who can give you water, that brings life. Right? It becomes even more clear if we put it together with a couple of things that God himself said in the Old Testament. Jesus is essentially giving the same invitation that God gives in Isaiah 55, which we read earlier. God says to his people, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. And delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. God says that to his people. And then Jesus stands up at a feast and says essentially the same thing to his people. It's really clear what he's saying about himself. God also said in Jeremiah 2.13, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, Broken cisterns that can hold no water. In other words, if your thirst is not being satisfied, it's because you're drinking from a leaky rain barrel. The place you've gone to satisfy your thirst doesn't hold water. It can't satisfy you. It's broken. It's not the real thing. You need to come to me. Only I can satisfy. Only I can give you life. So Jesus is claiming quite plainly, quite clearly to be God. And he is issuing an invitation to anyone and everyone who's hungry or thirsty to come to him. 
If you long to know God, if you want to be forgiven, if you want to be cleansed, if you want to be healed, if you know your life is messed up and you've messed it up and you want somebody to fix it because you can't, Jesus says, I'm talking to you. And if you will come to me, here's what's going to happen. He says, verse 38, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I'm not just going to give you enough water to satisfy you. I'm going to put a well inside of you that is going to overflow to others too. You're going to have living water flowing out of your heart. All you have to do is believe. All you have to do is come. All you have to do is trust me. This is what the scripture promised. And this is what will happen for all who trust in Christ. Now what is this living water that's going to flow out of our hearts? John tells us, verse 39, he said this about the Spirit. Now Jesus says that the Scripture said this, that out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, but there's, there's no one passage that he's specifically quoting there. He's probably referring to a collection of passages that bring together this idea of water and Spirit and life. For example, in Job 33, verse 4, it says, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Life comes from the Spirit. Right? If you want to have life, you need the Spirit of God. And then in Isaiah 44, verse 3, God says, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my Spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. I'll pour water upon you. I'll pour my spirit upon you. My spirit gives life. Jesus says, if you come to me, you believe in me, the spirit is going to come take up residence in you. You're going to have the water of life flowing out of you because the spirit, when he's poured out, brings life. Now, Jesus, or John also tells us, in verse 39, Jesus said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now that's an important statement for understanding the work of the Holy Spirit in the Bible, which there's a lot of confusion about, right? A lot of confusion about the way the Holy Spirit works, what the Holy Spirit does in the Bible. One of the key things that we don't want to overlook is that there is a sense in which the Holy Spirit was not given until after Jesus was glorified, meaning after Jesus was crucified, risen, and ascended to God's right hand. Right? Now, the Holy Spirit was at work before that. You can see the Spirit at work in the Old Testament and um, the men who... Uh, the, the chief man who constructed the tabernacle was filled with the Holy Spirit. When Saul was anointed king, the Holy Spirit came upon him. But then Saul was rejected at king, and the Spirit left Saul and came upon David. And that can kind of confuse people, because you think, ooh, can the Holy Spirit leave me? But in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit doesn't only come upon particular individuals at particular times, like Saul and David, or, you know, rush upon Samson to enable him to 
kill a lion with his bare hands. No, in the New Testament, the Spirit now, because of what Jesus did, the Spirit comes to dwell inside of every believer permanently. Right? Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 that we have received the Spirit and He is the seal of our inheritance. He is the down payment of what God has promised to give us fully at Jesus' return. In the book of Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes down on the day of Pentecost, you remember this? The disciples are gathered together and they hear a sound like a rushing wind and they have these little tongue-like flames of fire on their heads and they begin talking in all these different languages and people gather to them and they can't figure out how all these guys, most of whom are from Galilee, are speaking languages from all over the Roman Empire. And Peter stands up to explain it. And here's one of the things that he says. He says about Jesus, "...being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing." It is not until Jesus ascends to God's right hand, receives the promise of the Spirit, and then pours it out upon all of God's people, that then the prophecy of Joel comes to pass, that Peter also quotes in that sermon, where God pours out His Spirit on all flesh, men and women, young and old. All who believe now receive the promise of the Spirit, but that was not to happen until after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. Now, when Jesus said this, John says in verse 40, when the people heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. That's got to be him. That's got to be him. Others, in verse 41, said, this is the Christ. And they were both right. Jesus is the promised prophet like Moses, but who's far greater than Moses. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. But there's still this residual confusion about Jesus, because it says, some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? So, I mean, you guys have a point. It does seem like this could be the Messiah, but Jesus is from Galilee, and that's not where the Christ is supposed to come from. Right? They go on to say, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Now, are they right? Yeah, about part of it. Is the Christ supposed to come from Bethlehem? Yeah. Absolutely. That's where he was supposed to be from. That Micah prophesied that. He would be born in Bethlehem when uh, the wise men came to Herod. And we're asking about where the king of the Jews has been born. And Herod asked the scholars of the day. That's what they told him. He's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And he was. These people just didn't know that. All they knew is that Jesus was from Galilee. That's where they knew he was from. Because Jesus didn't grow up in Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem. And then he had to go down to Egypt. Because Herod was trying to kill him. And then when he came back. Right? They moved up into the north, and he grew up in Nazareth, in Galilee, not in Bethlehem. So the people know the scripture, they know what the Bible says, but they're missing some essential information about Jesus that leads them astray. They can't 
conclude that he's the Christ because they don't know that he actually is from where the Messiah is supposed to be from. It's important for us to know the full truth about Jesus as much as we can. That's one of the reasons why we should be so grateful that we have four Gospels that we get to read and hear and understand. And we have the rest of the New Testament to explain what Jesus accomplished in the Gospels. He was born in Bethlehem as prophesied. He is the Christ. He is the prophet. But many are still confused. There's still division about him. Verse 44 says, Some want to arrest him. But no one laid hands on him at this point. And it's at this moment that those men who were sent to arrest Jesus finally come back. Remember back in verse 32, they sent these men to arrest Jesus. Verse 45 says, The officers who came uh, then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? We gave you a job to do. You're supposed to arrest Jesus. It's not like he has an armed guard around him. Why isn't he here? Why didn't you arrest him? Why didn't you bring him back? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. Now, think about this too. This is not exaggeration on their part. Okay, If your job is to be some sort of like military or police type person who could be sent by the authorities to go arrest somebody. How many times you could come back empty-handed without a good excuse and get to keep your job, do you think? Not very many times. Maybe not even once. Right? So for them to refuse to arrest Jesus, though in one sense it should not have been difficult... Jesus wasn't wielding weapons, right? There had to be something so uniquely different about Jesus that they were more willing to come back to the authorities probably not knowing how much it was going to cost them and say, we can't arrest that guy. We don't know anybody else like that guy. You get somebody else to do your dirty work. We're not doing it. That, of course, did not make the Pharisees happy, right? So they said, verse 47, the Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? They think anybody who believes that Jesus is who he says he is has been led astray, has been deceived. They say, have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. A little bit of pride and arrogance going on there, right? We know the Bible. Those guys don't. We don't believe in him. Be careful who you take your cues from. You don't want to be led astray like those ignorant people out there who are following Jesus around. The people who know their stuff, they're not following Jesus. And neither should you, is what they're saying. But, there's a little chink in that argument. Because verse 50 says, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? 
Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He doesn't think those who are following Jesus are being deceived. He's gone to Jesus himself and talked to him. Now, he didn't believe at the time that Jesus was the Christ yet, but he knew that Jesus had come from God. He wasn't trying to arrest him or do away with him. And in this moment, Nicodemus stands up for Jesus in a very hostile environment. It's going to cost him something to do this. It would have been a lot easier for Nicodemus to keep his mouth shut. His companions, colleagues, say to him in verse 52, Are you from Galilee too? Which they mean as an insult, right? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now they've got two problems right there. Number one is, Jesus is not from Galilee. Right? Like we just said. That's where everybody thinks he's from, because that's where he lives now, but that's not where he was born. He's not from Galilee. Second problem they have is it's actually not true that no prophet arises from Galilee. There is at least one prophet in the Old Testament who did come from Galilee. Jonah. Jonah was from Gath-Hefer, which is not only in Galilee, but also very near to Nazareth. So even if Jesus was from Galilee, it wouldn't be unheard of for a prophet to come from that area. And maybe it's significant that Jonah lived not far from where Jesus did most of his growing up and much of his ministry. Because when these same people asked Jesus for a sign, when the Pharisees wanted a sign from Jesus because they didn't believe him and they were hostile to him, he said, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. Just like Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man is going to be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's going to be your sign. My death and resurrection on the third day. If that doesn't convince you that I am who I said I was all along, nothing else will. When all the facts are on the table, when the story is played out, when we have all the information, when the tomb is empty, Jesus' identity becomes crystal clear. He said it all along. I am God. I am God in the flesh. I can do what only God can do. I can give what only God can give. I have come here to do what only God can do, which is to save His people from their sin. And I'm going to do that by laying down my life, which I have the authority to do because I'm God. And I will take it up again on the third day, which I have authority to do because I'm God. And I'm going to call everyone to turn to me and trust in me because there's no one else like me. No one else who can do what I can do. No one else who can give what I can give. Come to me if you're thirsty. Come to me for whatever you need. Come to me because I alone can give you life. That is Jesus' invitation and His promise to all who trust in Him. Let's pray.